Well, we do, uh, it is such a privilege to come into the Lord's house together, isn't it? Just to, to spend time in His Word, to spend time in prayer, even sharing each other's requests and, and lives. And Lord, we just uh, are so gracious. It's so gracious that the Lord would allow us to do that. You know, as we go through the book of Philemon, you know, it's a different book. It's different than most any of other Paul, of Paul's letters. You know, it's it's the only personal letter not written to another pastor that's in the, the Scripture. Now, we have no doubt Paul probably wrote to lots of people, but this one in particular was included in Scripture. Um, and so we have a, a picture of what Paul is like, not just as the apostle, not just as the, the pastor trainer, but as a brother in Christ. And that's what's amazing to me as I read through this, this letter many times over the last several weeks, is you see Paul, the believer in Christ, talking to another believer and working through real issues, but doing it in a, in a gracious, brotherly way instead of as an authoritative way. We're going to talk about that because really what I see as we go through our section together is... This is Paul demonstrating what biblical love is. You know, a lot of his letters talk about love. He gives commands. He gives us teaching and explanation of what love is. But in this letter, we see love in action through the life, through the words of Paul. You know, as we start, you know, we've all heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, and I, I was thinking about that because, I, again, I think this is Paul painting a picture for us of what it means to love each other. And I wondered, where did that come from? Well, that, the phrase was first uttered, or a, a similar phrase was, was uttered back in March of 1911 at the Syracuse Advertising Men's Club. They had a banquet to discuss journalism and publicity, and there, there, there's an author Author Brisbane, who covered the event, and this is how he, he described it. He said, use a picture, it's worth a thousand words. And so that's been kind of attributed to him from this point on. In 1918, the first instance of the exact word, a picture is worth a thousand words, actually was published in the San Antonio Light, which was a, 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 a newspaper down in uh, San Antonio. It was an advertisement, and it says, one of the nation's greatest editors says, a picture is worth a thousand words. The San Antonio Light's pictorial magazine of the war exemplifies the truth of the above statement, judging from the warm reception it received at the hand of the Sunday Light readers. And so, you know, you can imagine if you've heard someone talk about the war, right, whether that's World War I, World War II, the Civil War, right, any of the wars, it's, it's one thing to hear someone explain it, but boy, you start seeing pictures or you start seeing video, it changes your perspective. What's interesting, though, is this concept, this idea is not new or as new as 1911, uh, throughout history, there's been several other examples. Leonardo da Vinci, in fact, wrote that a poet would, quote, be overcome by sleep and hunger before being able to describe with words what a painter is able to depict in an instant. And I like that. That's very well poetic, right? It's a poetic way to say the same thing, right? But the reality is, is that we know 
And we are taught constantly through words what we should do, how we should act. As believers in Christ, how we should behave. And we often get pictures, right? An actual picture. We see that's part of the reason the Old Testament includes so much historical narrative. We see the lives of people, and as they trust the Lord or they reject the Lord, we see the truth of Scripture come to life. We certainly see that most of all in the life of Jesus. As we see Him walk through life and deal with the, the, the issues He faced, He was, uh, if we just heard about what He said, that would be one thing. But then to see how He reacted, how He responded, makes it a world of difference. And Paul himself throughout his writing instructs us on the importance of love and how, how vital it is and gives uh, verse after verse about different aspects of love, right? The love between a husband and a wife, a, a love between the, the, the father and the son or the, the parents and the child, how, how we should love each other in even the work relationships. But in this book, in this letter, Paul himself becomes a picture for us, an example for us of what it means to truly excuse me, love someone else as a brother or sister in Christ. So we're going to work through this passage. I'm, I'm going to be with you all, Lord willing, this week and next week, um, going through kind of the heart of the letter. Um, and my goal is to try to, to obviously point out what uh, truths Paul is demonstrating here, but let's read through uh, verses 8 through 14 together. Paul says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. So we have here Paul starting, obviously we're not starting the letter, so he says the very first word is therefore. And we always ask ourselves the question, what is the therefore? Therefore. Right? So, Paul is just finished talking about Philemon. And again, this is Paul, the brother in Christ, coming and talking to his fellow brother. This is what he says. He says that he thanks God for Philemon in verses 4 through 7. He, he says, I hear constantly, it's, it's being reported to me about your love and your faith for, uh, uh, faith for others. He says, I've been praying for your effectiveness in your ministry. And he says in verse 7, it's so beautiful. It says, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because of the, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. 
Right? Again, you get this picture that Paul loves Philemon as a brother in Christ. And he says, because I love you, because I know who you are, therefore, I'm going to make this request. And he says, first of all, I have enough confidence in, in Christ to order you to do what's proper. He says, I could come and give you a command. But Paul says, I don't need to do that because I know who you are. And so Paul has a, uh, we're going to talk about love. We're going to see love's faithful belief. That love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, believes all things, hopes all things. Paul is demonstrating that. And he, first of all, has a confidence in Philemon. He says, I'm going to make a request, but I'm going to just make it as a request, not as a command. One of the commentators paraphrased this transition. He says, you know, encouraged by these tidings of thy loving spirit, I prefer to entreat where I might command. And so again, Paul is, because of who he knows Philemon is, desires to come alongside him as a brother in Christ and and encourage and entreat, not command. In fact, the the word in in the NASB that's uh, command is also called enjoin. I love that. I could could enforce you, right? I could enlist you and say, this is what you're going to do, but I don't want to do that. And we know, obviously, Paul had the right. He could have, as an apostle, said, hey, this is what you're going to do, Philemon. This is what works out best for me. You're going to be okay with it too, right? Nod your head, right? We've heard people that have kind of encouraged us to do the things that we might not want to do out of that mindset. And Paul sometimes did, you know, in, in churches or in ministries where he was challenged or, or, or questioned. We see that especially in Corinthians. Second Corinthians is the, a defense of Paul's apostleship, and he's constantly having to say, hey, I am an apostle, and because I'm an apostle, that means something. And he didn't like to do that. You could tell even as he writes that letter, he's not saying, look at me, I'm an apostle, you should all bow down to me, but he's just saying, God has given me this role, and you need to submit. Paul didn't always do that. And he didn't do that as we went through First and Second Thessalonians. Paul didn't command or order them. This is what he says in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Right? Paul desired to not just walk up and say, you know, a big banner, look, Paul the apostle is talking, you better listen. And we see that in life right here. He wants to come alongside Philemon to encourage him to do what is proper, to encourage him. So Paul believed and knew that Philemon was the right type of person. He's already acknowledged that in verses 4 through 7. He says, brother, you're walking faithfully with Christ. Your love is known. You're an encouragement to those around you. And because of that, I'm coming alongside you. Now, Philemon had been someone of ill repute, uh, you know, someone who was known as a drunkard or a lazy man or, you know, some kind of problems. Maybe Paul's approach would have been different. But Paul here says, 
that he is confident that he can do this. And he also says Paul has a confidence in Christ. He says, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you. In other words, he said, I could clearly, clearly call on my authority that was given by Christ to do what you want to, or to do what I want to do, but I'm not going to do that. What's interesting is the words there, when it talks about confidence in Christ, it's actually talking about Paul believed and knew that Christ was working through Philemon. And he knew that Christ was accomplishing Christ's mission in that. He, he knew, as he says in, in Philippians 1.21, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the end. Right? That, that Philemon is someone that Christ is working in, is making him more like himself, making him more like Christ. And Paul was confident that that work was continuing on. And so he says, because I know that, because I know who you are, first of all, and because I know who Christ is, I can come alongside and not have to order you, but I can just encourage you. Now, this biblical love that's demonstrated through the example of Paul, as we go through this, what I've been rocked with in my own life is, am I following this example? Do I interact with the people in my life the way that Paul is here with Philemon? And so the first question is, do we consider others this way? Do we see the value of others, or do we sometimes easy to just see the areas that they're falling short of? The areas where they're not perfect, because guess what? None of us are. Do we, do we look for the things people are doing well and encourage that, acknowledge that, build up that in their lives, or are we just kind of looking for, oh, yeah, look at that, I can't believe they did that. Oh, man, could you, oh, man, and I thought they were a good Christian. Secondly, are we seeing Christ work, right? The reality is, is those those. Christians around us that are maturing, that are growing in their faith, that is the work of Christ in them, right? It's not, I mean, I'm not trying to discount that there's effort and involve, involve for each of us, but that we need to see Christ is working in His people and trust that Christ will continue to work so that even when there are problems, Christ can work through that, that we have confidence that Christ will perfect each person and to the end, Paul believed that the sheep would be made like the shepherd. Do we? Do we trust Christ that way, or do we feel like we need to be the ones to fix that person? We need to be the ones to correct that behavior. And again, I'm not talking about people that we really know, but sometimes it's real easy to, to just spend a lot of time, I want to fix these people. That's not what Paul did. So Paul had a faithful belief. He believed and knew that Philemon would respond the right way. We're going to come back again. There's, there's a lot of phrases that point that out as we go through. We'll look at that. But he believed. He had confidence in Christ that Christ was working through Philemon. Second, we're going to see love's gentle leadership. Love's gentle leadership. Again, 
Paul is not coming in saying, look at me, I've got the credentials, here's my resume. Look at what I am, listen to me because of who I am. In fact, he doesn't describe himself in this letter at all as an apostle. In verse 1, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. In, in verse uh, 9, sorry, got lost there for a second. He says, I am Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ. We see Paul, his humble circumstances, he recognizes, I'm not anybody special. Right? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm aged, I'm old, and I'm a prisoner. Right? Now, there's, there's a biblical mandate or a biblical command to give honor to older people. That is a good thing, right? Proverbs, <laughs> I'm sorry, let me say that again. There is a, no. <laughs> but we, we know, right? We, we all expect that. I'm a little bit younger than some of y'all, Okay. But I'm older than some people, and I still want them to treat me a certain way, right? Because that's the, the expectation. We know in the Old Testament, Proverbs 16, 31, a gray head is a crown of glory, and it's found in the way of righteousness. So those of you with gray heads, rise up with your crown of glory. Okay, I'll be there soon. Leviticus 19:32 says, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. This is God Himself saying, older people should be honored, should be revered. So, I think Paul wasn't coming at it from that angle, right? He was, he was not saying, look at me, I'm old, you got to do what I say because you got to feel bad for me. I think he was just coming to say, I'm an old man. I've been around a long time, and I'm sitting here in prison, and that's what I am. I'm Paul. I'm the aged. I'm the prisoner. You know, in the, the ancient times, in, in the biblical times, there was a, a, a concept of seven stages of human life that, that kind of groups of seven years, not always just seven years, but sometimes seven or 14 years. And you had a little boy, which was up to seven, and then a, and then a boy, which was up to 14, and then a lad who was up to 21, and then a young man was up to 28. And then a man was up all the way to 49. But then you had an elderly man, and then finally an old man. So I'm not sure which would rather be called, elderly or old. But there's a concept, right? There's these phases of life. And every person, by the Lord's grace, goes through that. We age and we mature and we grow over time. And Paul says, I'm I'm old. Right? He knows that their time of his living is coming to an end. But he says also, I'm a prisoner. Again, you might want to say, yeah, I'm old, listen to me. Prisoners, on the other hand, don't normally have a lot of street credibility. Right? There's not a lot of people that are like, oh, we should go find out what the prisoners think and see what their thoughts are on this. But this is Paul, willing to constantly identify himself as a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't say that to say, you know, something glorious, because again, most people would be embarrassed by that. But he's saying, I am a prisoner, and it's always of Christ Jesus for the Lord's sake. 
I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Over and over again. Because he was in prison because of what he taught. Because he taught Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's calling himself old and he's calling himself a prisoner. And he's not doing that to just get pity. But just acknowledging I, there's, there's a limited amount I can do here. But what I think is interesting, and I brought this up briefly before, but Paul doesn't choose to call himself something that if we had the title, whew, we'd be using it, right? If, I mean, think about it. If you were one of the, the people that Jesus Christ himself had handpicked to lead the church, you think that might go on your business card? Might that be on your, your LinkedIn profile or your resume, right, somewhere near the top? I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Paul chooses not to even bring that up. Again, he's coming to Philemon as his brother and saying, I'm an old man. I'm a prisoner. But I'd love for you to listen to what I have to say. I'd love for you to hear my request. And he says, it's because of my love for you that I appeal to you. I just, I'm making a request. And I love this. He says this, I appeal to you. He says it in verse 9. He says it in verse 10. He's making an appeal. This is Paul's humble guidance. He, he's not commanding. He's not demanding He's not saying, you better listen to me. He's just saying, hey, I'm going to make an appeal to you. Now, again, appeal is a pretty strong word. It's not just like a, hey, you know, if you got a chance, could you do this? You know, uh, I sometimes make an appeal or, or, or make a request to my kids that I think they, they hear as though it's just completely optional, right? Would you please go take out the trash means don't take out the trash and keep doing what you were doing, Right? Sometimes they do respond the right way. But if I make an appeal, right, if I'm sitting down and I'm looking at them, I'm saying, I really need you to do this. Can you please take care of this, right? Hopefully there's, a, there's something about the strength of what I'm asking that, that they're more likely to respond to. And this is Paul making an appeal. This is, he, he, he makes this or uses this word a lot. But the reality is, is he's coming alongside and he's saying, I'm not commanding you here. I'm not bossing you around. I'm not pulling a rank card on you. I'm making an appeal. The reality is, is in, in many of his writings, as, as Paul is talking to believers, he uses the same word. Because the reality is we're not going to obey just because someone told us to. Right? In fact, sometimes some of us may chafe at being told what to do. Right? If we're told what to do all the time, we're like, I don't want to do that. Right? I'm tired of being told what to do. In Romans chapter 12, after Paul has finished 11 chapters of this amazing doctrine and all of this rich fullness that if you want to listen to several hundred hours worth of sermons, you can listen to Pastor Tom go through that. This is what he says in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, that's the same word, I urge you. Brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
he appeals to us as believers to say, don't just take this doctrine and say, oh, that's good to know. I can pass a theology test now. But live it out by the mercies of God to actively live like Christ wants us to. He is appealing to us. In 2 Corinthians 5, he, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Again, there's this picture. We can't command someone to obey the gospel. You know, it'd be nice if we could. We can't force people to, to believe and in, in trust in the, the Lord Jesus for the salvation of sins. But we can appeal to them. We can urge them. We can say, this is so good for you. Please consider the truth here. You know, Paul's request um, put me in mind, uh, my, one of my favorite books of all time is Pride and Prejudice, okay? I love that. It, it's great. My wife does not like it as much, but I do, and uh, most of my boys don't because they think it's a girly book, but it's okay. It's a good book. It's really good, but it's a great character study, but, but this, this request is Paul, because again, imagine if you're getting a letter and Paul's asking you for something, Right? I mean, if it, whatever it was, can you walk across the country and bring me a glass of water? I think we'd be all in, right? Because it's, it's Paul. It made me think of a, a phrase talking about the character in, in Pride and Prejudice, Mr. Darcy. He says, he's the kind of man indeed to whom I should never dare refuse anything which he condescended to ask. If Paul were to ask me, man, I would do everything in my power to do it. You know, and I think Philemon probably had the same attitude because I, I have no doubt that Philemon had the same love for Paul that Paul had for Philemon. He, he, he trusted Paul and knew Paul was desiring to honor the Lord, and I think he, he would be ready to hear, ready to listen to that. You know, it's interesting as we think about Paul's humble uh, uh, guidance, his, his, his gentle leadership, how many of the New Testament apostles behave the same way? Why is that? Why is it that Paul wasn't just beating people over the head with, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle? Right? Why wasn't Peter doing that? Why, why not James? Right? James, the, the half-brother of Jesus in his letter, only identifies himself as a as a uh, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Because they learned the lesson directly from God. They learned the lesson directly from our Lord Jesus Himself. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25, He says, Jesus called them, that's His disciples, to Himself. And He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He says, you don't need to be like that. You don't need a Lord over them. You don't need to be like Gentile leaders. And Paul took that lesson and he, he passed it on as, as did others. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, not that we lord it over your faith, but we're workers for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. I already read one, one passage in 1 Thessalonians, but in Chapter 5, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction. We urge you, 
right? We request of you. We don't demand it. Peter says, as he's talking about leadership, talking to leaders in the church, he says that they should shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over to those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That's what biblical leadership is. That's what a, a biblical pastor is. I mean, I see it readily in our church. We have pastors that, that are gentle leaders. I can't think of one that I would say is, is overly authoritarian, that, that, that chooses to use his title or his position to accomplish his goals instead of coming alongside. Our elders are the same way. In fact, if you didn't have the page on the website, you didn't see them up there when they're installing a new elder or a new deacon, the elders, you, you wouldn't even know who they were. They don't walk around with a special badge on their chest saying, look at me, I'm an elder, right? Milt, you haven't gotten that out lately, have you? Okay. <laughs> right? I mean, Milt's an elder, but you, you wouldn't know it because he's just a brother in Christ. He comes alongside us as, as a brother and, and encourages us to do the right thing. But he's not sitting here saying, you better listen to me because I'm an elder. That's what biblical, gentle leadership is. That's, that's love. Now, there's a place for, obviously, authority. There, there's a time and a place where you have to come in and say, I'm your parent, you need to obey, right? I'm your boss, you need to obey. I'm the, the police, you need to obey. You know, there's a place for that. But as, as Christians... That shouldn't be the pattern of our lives. We should be coming alongside, providing humble guidance, recognizing that we are just fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, walking alongside the same path. We also see the third point there, Paul's familial affection. Paul uses these words that are family words. I love that. You didn't say, hey, there's this guy, and you're, you're another guy. And yeah, you're kind of a good guy, but you're just a guy. No, he says, Onesimus is my son. He's my son. I've begotten him in prison. He's become my child through the ministry I was able to perform in prison. You know, it's interesting, the, the actual structure of, of this verse, in verse 10, has Onesimus being the very last word in the sentence. So this is how it reads in, in Young's literal translation. It says, I entreat thee concerning my child, whom I did, be, I did beget in my bonds, Onesimus. Right? Again, I think we see this, this structure of it might be as soon as Philemon hears Onesimus' name, he might be like, oh, that guy. He owes me, right? He ran off. He probably stole something from me. But Paul kind of sets it up and he says, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm making a request for my child, my son. <laughs> Second of all, he's, he's not only like my son because I care about him like a son, but he's my spiritual son. I actually brought him to the Lord. I, I, I led him to faith in prison. Oh, yeah, his name is Onesimus. 
Right? I love that Paul is, is structuring this. Again, just walking through. He's sharing his heart with Philemon that my child, we know what that means. Right? We understand, most of us, what it is to have a child. And the love we feel for them, the desire that we want the best for them. We want them to be uh, taken care of. We, we want them to be kept from harm. We would do anything we could possibly do to protect them. That's what Paul feels for Onesimus. This is Paul. You know, the reality is Paul used this term a lot. Sometimes it's about Timothy, sometimes it's about Titus, sometimes it's about a group, but ultimately it really was that personal touch. Those people that Paul individually had led to the Lord were very special to him. Very special. And it creates a bond that you can't just overcome easily. You know, I think about um, the partners program. I know we've, we talk about that from time to time. If you haven't done partners, you should do it, okay? It's, it's one of the best one-on-one discipling tools we have. But one of the things I love is that when you go through partners, you spend hours and hours and hours with this person, fellowshipping around the Word of God, discussing things from God's Word, and you develop a relationship that lasts beyond that 10 weeks, right? Just 10 weeks, Paul, not six months, right? Okay, Sometimes it takes a little longer to get through all that fellowship than others. But when you finish, well, you see that person that you led through partners or you went through partners with, and every time, without fail, your heart leaps a little, right? You just feel that connection. That's the, that's the, the, the reality of what Paul feels. I have a question as we consider this, a question for myself as well. Who do I have this kind of a relationship with? If I don't, if I can't really point to anybody that I would say, this is my child in the faith, maybe I'm not sharing the gospel enough. Maybe I'm kind of isolated in my Christian bubble and I never step out and talk to people. I never connect with anybody. I'm not looking for new people that I can have a kind of a relationship with. We should all be doing that. Right? We can't all lead everybody to the Lord, but we can all have a part in leading some. But Paul's beloved son, and then again, Paul's used this term multiple times with Philemon, it's his brother. It's his brother. He comes alongside Philemon and he says, brother, I love you. I see what the Lord's doing in your life, and I make this request. Again, brothers, maybe you've got a great relationship with your brother. Maybe you have a bad relationship with your brother, right? Maybe you don't have a relationship at all. But brothers in Christ, there is a connection there that goes beyond even flesh and blood. That's one of the things I love about this church you know, I've been I've been blessed to be at Countryside since 1997. I was 17 years old my first Sunday at Countryside. Okay, I was a fool. I was young and immature, 
But God in His goodness brought me to this place where I found my wife and where my kids have grown up. And we've matured a little bit, you know. I've matured a little bit. But you know what? There are people, many people at this church that I love so much. So much. Even more than my actual flesh and blood family because there's a connection in the fellowship around Christ in our shared relationship with Jesus Christ and with this church, it's different. Again, that's vital in our lives, that we would have brothers, sisters in Christ that we're walking with, that we're encouraging, that we're building each other up. You know, as he talks about Onesimus, he he says this in verse 11. He says he was... Formerly useless to you. Now, this is great because Paul likes to do little plays on words. This one's pretty easy. Onesimus means useful. He said he used to be useless to you. Again, we don't know the full context of exactly what happened, but there's a lot of commentators that believe, and it makes sense reading this, that, that Onesimus was either a disobedient slave or a lazy slave or a lazy disobedient slave. Right? Either way, <laughs> he wasn't great. There was issues. And that may have been what led Onesimus to running off. Right? It may have led to him stealing something from Philemon, if in fact he did. We, we don't know that for sure. We'll get into that discussion more next week. But he says, you know what? I'm sending him back to you. Or I'm sorry, he was formerly useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. You know, our usefulness comes from our relationship with Christ. And that's what Onesimus, that's what Paul's saying about Onesimus. He's useful to you now, not just because he's going to be a better worker, not just because he's going to respond the right way to you, but he's useful to you now because he is a brother in Christ. points out to me that I think, think about us being useful to our master, that Christ has called us to do the things that we should do, right? We know that worthless or useless slaves will be thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I love this picture in Luke chapter 17, verse 10. It says, so you too when you do all the things which you are commanded. Wow, that's, that's a pretty high praise because I know I don't always do all the things that are commanded. But when you do, even if you said, I did everything I was commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what is right and what we ought to have done. You know, that's, that's my desire. I want to be... <laughs> A slave that just does what he's supposed to do. To be useful to the master is my desire. You know, it's interesting that as he calls Philemon to do what is proper, he says that in verse 8, right? I have confidence that you will do what is proper. And we see that picture of here's Onesimus. You're going to do what's proper. Okay, that's maybe easy. Big picture, big, let's go proper. 
oh wait, now you've got to do what's proper to this guy? This one that ran away? What was proper at that time, according to the law, was basically anything that Philemon felt like doing. He could have beaten him. He could have killed him. He could have charged him with the most difficult jobs. And, and you know, it, there's many things he could have done. There was even, I read one thing that said they would brand an F on their forehead. And the idea is that it was the Latin word for thief so that they could never get away, never avoid it, never hide again. Again, Paul says, with this one, I want you to do what you should. I want you to do, I want you to see that he is now useful to you, useful to you. And now we get to the the, the request, he's already appealed. He says, I'm, I'm appealing on behalf of my child. And now in verse 12, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this request. I'm going to talk to you about this, but you need to understand I'm not going to do it because of what's best for me. It's Paul's selfless, our love's selfless request. He says, I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul had a desire here. Right? It's interesting, Paul isn't teaching us that we, we can't ever want anything. Paul wanted Onesimus to stay with him. He says, Onesimus has been useful to me already. He's been ministering to me in prison. Which, if you read the rest of Paul's letters, you know that wasn't always happening. There were people coming and going, and there was times that people turned away and stopped supporting Paul and stopped serving Paul. And he says, he's been a great comfort to me, and I desire to do this, but, but I'm not going to do what I want because I'm going to consider your interests, your needs as more important than my own. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, that's a great verse. Well, there's two verses. Uh, we've, we've had multiple of our kids memorize that verse. And it's wonderful when they memorize verses in Awana because then we can come back and remind them as they choose to disobey those verses, hey, remember when you said and you talked about? Well, here's Paul living that out. He says, I have a desire. I want to keep this person with me. I want him to serve me. But I've sent him back. So that, he, at verse 14, without your consent, I did not want to do anything. He says, I sent him back because I want to make clear it's your choice, Philemon, what you do. He says, this is my, my very heart. Again, we get a picture of the, the love that Paul has for uh, Onesimus. But he says, I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm looking out for your interests here. 
you know, the word that Paul uses here, it doesn't um, show up well in the, the NASB. In verse 12, I sent him back to you in person, that is sending my very heart. The, the, the word there is actually re- translated receive in the older texts. And it's not really just the idea of just accepting him back, like he's going to physically come back with you. But the term really is forgive. And that's why we, this, this is where we can see this, this letter, really the root of, the heart of this letter, right? The book theme of this letter is a manual on forgiveness. So we really get into the, the, the request is, Philemon, not only do you need to bring him back on to your service, not only do you need to put him to work in your house or doing whatever it is that he was doing as a slave, but Philemon. You need to forgive. You need to forgive. Paul is, is encouraging him. Again, he's not commanding him, but he's saying, I'm sending him to you so that you can forgive him, so that there's not enmity between the two of you. What, what did Philemon need to forgive, right? Well, in the past, Onesimus had been useless to him, right? Paul just said that. We, we, we don't know, again, exactly what happened, but it sounds like he wasn't on the, the, the star chart of employee of the month, right? Onesimus had run away from Philemon. That, that's not great. It's likely that Onesimus had stolen from Philemon, and yet Paul says here, you need to forgive. You need to forgive him. We'll get into this, this concept more next week because Paul really builds into what do we do with the debt that's owed in, in these, these relationships and, and some of those things. But I wanted to turn together and look at this parable, or this teaching of our Lord, because I feel like it's so powerful. And I think this is the heart that Paul is demonstrating, and it's the heart that I think we need to demonstrate as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and starting in verse 21, we have Jesus going to teach on forgiveness. And I know these are words that are very familiar to us all, but I, I want us to really consider what Jesus is teaching us here. Starts out with Peter. Love it. Peter's always a great way to start a section, right? Peter came to said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? As you can just see Peter waiting for the pat on the back. Wow, Peter, that is so generous. That is so gracious of you to forgive up to seven times. Wow, you are kind and gracious. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And again, for you math nerds, it's not 490. He doesn't say keep a chart. He's just saying basically, don't count it. Don't keep up. You just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving when your brother sins against you. In verse 23, it says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had in repayment to be made. Now understand, we don't deal with talents. Talent was a day's wages, right? So 10,000 days wages, that's a lot of days. The selling of this slave, even in his wife and his children, into slavery to someone else would not even come close to eliminating the debt, but it was better than nothing. But this slave owed more than he could ever, ever, ever pay. And the slave fell to the ground, verse 26, and prostrated himself before the master and said, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Could he? (laughs) Was he ever going to be able to repay it? No, not even close. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. Now that obviously is a picture of the forgiveness we receive from Christ. Right? We owe a debt we will never, ever, ever, ever be able to pay. Our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God, and it is only by His goodness and grace that we can have our debts canceled out through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and we can be free from that penalty. So that's an amazing, an amazing thing. You can imagine the slave going, I don't even know what just happened, right? I owed more than I could ever, ever pay, and yet now I owe nothing. Wow. And you would hope, obviously, that this is transformational for this slave, and he's now going to be gracious and kind to others. And here's what it says. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him and said, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have have patience with me and I will repay you. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Right? There's a debt owed. There's a request for a demand for repayment. There's, There's a request for mercy. Only in this instance, it's a much, much, much smaller amount. And this slave who had just been forgiven more than he could ever pay back in his entire lifetime was unwilling. And he went and he threw the other slave into prison until he should pay back what is owed. He didn't have the same forgiveness that the Lord, the Master, did. He didn't demonstrate that. It says, when the fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord, or his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay him all that was owed. Which again, was, he'll never be able to pay it back, especially when he's just being tortured all the time. Can't work. 
Verse 35, Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You know, that is powerful. That is the, the means by which we can forgive is always remembering how much we have been forgiven. Right? Recognizing our debt to God and how immense that was, how impossible it would be to ever pay back that and to see God be gracious to us should lead us to be gracious and forgiving to others. The reality is, is there's nothing that any one of us could do to the other that's anywhere close to what we did to God. There's no debt between the two of us, between any two of us, that could ever be larger than the debt that we owe to to God, that Jesus Christ paid for us. And so forgiveness should be kind of one of those like, yeah, obviously, obviously I'm going to forgive you because what's that, right? It's a few pennies. I owed billions. I owed trillions. Uh, Yeah. But is that how our hearts work? Not always how mine works, right? Because we start looking at how bad that person is and what they did wrong and how they shouldn't have done that and how awful it was and we focus on their sin and not recognizing God's work in our own lives. Paul says, you know, I don't, I don't want to, to do this without your consent. Right? I'm not doing this. I'm not going to tell you how it is. I mean, I, I, I thought about mocking up a letter that would be written by, you know, a, an anti-Paul right? How Paul could have written the letter. It'd be real short, right? Hey, Paul. Hey, Philemon. This is Paul. I've got Onesimus with me. He's going to stay. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, like he, he could have just said, this is what's going to happen. But he says, I don't want to do that. I, I, I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to say, hey, this is what I'd like, but you do what you want. You make the choice not by compulsion, but of your own free will. That's, that's what we have to say. We want to be gracious to others, forbearing others. You know, as we close today, I, I put some questions in there, and some of the questions were sprinkled in through the lesson, but things to really consider this week. Ask yourself, I, I'm asking myself, how consistently do I believe the best about my fellow believer? On what base or basis do I my confidence in the good of other believers? Or what on what do I base my confidence in the good of other believers? Right? I can think good about them, not just because they're a good guy, but ultimately because they're Christ's. They're my brother. How do I think about and describe myself, my abilities, my importance? Am I quick to throw a title around? Throw my position or authority around? How do I try to get other believers to do what I want? Am I gentle or forceful? Do I consider my fellow believers as family 
How do I show my love for them? Am I more concerned about my preference or about the preferences of others? And we're going to get to this. I moved it to next week, but do I see the hand of God amidst every circumstance? Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much. Lord, we thank You that even in this passage where there's not direct commands to us, there's not instruction for us to follow, we thank You that we get to see the example of Paul. Or we thank You that You worked in Paul's heart so that he loved You and he loved Philemon. And he gave us a beautiful picture, a picture that, that's so clear and, and seems to make it so obvious how we should act. Lord, I pray that we would do that. Lord, help us to live out the truth that Paul demonstrates in this passage. Help us to, to think of others the right way. Help us to love others the way you have called us to do. Help us to be selfless. Help us to never lose sight of the fact that we have been forgiven so much, so much, that any sin against us is so minor by comparison that we should be willing and ready to forgive. And Lord, help us this week to, to, to pursue You, to pursue a relationship with fellow believers that would, would rival or would, would follow the pattern that Paul has given us here. Lord, we do pray that You would be with us the rest of this day, that You would guide us. Lord, help us to walk in the truth of what You've shared with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.